Thank you for tuning into this webinar, The Buck Stops With You, Retirement Plan Liability Management. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH Employer Solutions. AGH Employer Solutions is a team of professionals that helps employers, business owners, and human resource professionals hire, compensate, manage, engage, train, and retain one of their most critical resources, their talent. Today's speakers are Brad Bechtel and David Darby. Brad leads the Employee Benefit Services team at AGH. EBS serves clients nationwide and is one of the region's largest providers of retirement plan record-keeping services for daily valuation plans and employee stock ownership plans. Brad has served as a consultant to numerous Fortune 500 corporations in the areas of investment management and fiduciary due diligence. He also provides search and selection due diligence consulting services for companies seeking new investment and record-keeping providers for their qualified plans. Dave has been a licensed financial professional since 1989. Before joining AGH, he worked with a large mutual fund company and for nearly a decade in banking, including in serving as a chairman of the Mutual Fund Selection Committee for the Super Regional Bank's 401k product. With more than 25 years in the financial services industry, Dave brings a unique perspective having worked for both a mutual fund complex and a bank trust department while providing investment management due diligence and education services for plan sponsors and participants in the plan. As a plan sponsor, you alone bear the fiduciary responsibility of managing your company's retirement plan, a responsibility that cannot be delegated to an investment advisor, outside trustee, or record keeper. How do you manage the performance of the plan and act as a prudent investor on behalf of all participants while decreasing the company's risk and your own personal liability? This session will define the fiduciary responsibilities of retirement plan sponsors and why failures can occur. We'll also cover litigation hotspots and best practices for managing and mitigating risks. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Uh, good morning to everybody. Uh, today we're going to cover a number of topics, our learning objectives for the day. Uh, first one would be to give you a, a better understanding of what the retirement plan sponsors uh, fiduciary liabilities and responsibilities are. Uh, we're going to hit on a couple of litigation hotspots that have uh, kind of popped up and we're seeing in the retirement plan area. We'll talk a little bit about identifying some best practices for uh, decreasing uh, your plan sponsor risk. We've got a checklist that would be able to help you with that as well. And then we've added, uh, lastly, we've added in a slide to talk a little bit about the DOL's recently proposed fiduciary uh, regulations and what implications those may have uh, to you, know, you as a fiduciary, to your service providers, or maybe even to the plan. So. Retirement plan sponsors, you know, they, they've got their hands full with their administrative responsibilities related to the retirement plans for their employees, making payroll deductions to distributing quarterly plan account statements uh, to your participants, to the day-to-day -day tasks that you need to perform to keep the plan running smoothly. But there's another key responsibility that plan sponsors of retirement plans need to consider, and that's fiduciary responsibility. It's an obligation that is defined and, and prescribed under federal law, and, and it has to be taken seriously. That being said, just because it's a major duty doesn't mean it needs to necessarily become overwhelming or impossible to accomplish. Uh, as you'll see today, um, much of this is going to be based on common sense. Um, once procedures are written and put in place, it's a lot easier to follow them and continue to find ways to reduce your liability. So let's, let's start with a quick polling question. Um, I'm kind of curious as to, uh, for, for all of you, what uh, you're interested in today. Are you a fiduciary? Are you not a fiduciary? Uh, or are you here just to, to, to gain CPE credit? 
Results are in. It looks like uh, about 52% of you are fiduciaries, uh, 26 are not, and 22% of you are here to uh, earn uh, continuing ed credits. So uh, welcome to you, those of you that are, are earning your CE credits. Probably when we're done today, you're going to decide you don't want to be a fiduciary, but that's, that's okay. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, who is a fiduciary? The, the Employee Retirement Income Securities Act of 1974, or ERISA, uh, as it's more commonly known, certainly a lot less of a mouthful of words, uh, it defines a fiduciary as someone who has the power to affect plan assets. Um, often they're named in the plan document as a fiduciary, uh, or someone who gives investment guidance concerning uh, assets of the plan. Now, you can actually become a fiduciary by title, or more importantly, by action. In practice, it's often daily actions that uh, make someone a fiduciary, using discretion and administering the plan, managing the assets. Uh, that'll make a person a fiduciary to the extent that they have discretion or control over it. So fiduciary status can actually be based on function, uh, the functions that, that you perform in a plan than necessarily just being named in the document. All right. As we've seen, persons who have discretionary authority over plan assets are fiduciaries. This could include members of the plan's administrative committee who, who develop uh, administrative procedures for the plan, choose investment options uh, available to the participants, uh, or even consider plan amendments. The definition uh, could also include the company's board of directors who may authorize certain aspects of the plan's operations, such as employer match or profit sharing contributions. Others who perform fiduciary functions could include like a trustee uh, or the company's plan administrator. For example, someone who maybe determines who's eligible to be in the plan or who uh, authorizes and approves uh, a, a participant distribution or a loan or a hardship. Someone who might approve uh, the payment of fees from the plan. So if you play a role in your plan's activities, there's a good chance you might be a fiduciary might be good if we actually redid that poll and see how many people have changed their minds now. So, But as a general rule, uh, if the plan sponsor has a position of authority over the management of the assets uh, or oversees uh, the selection of fiduciaries who exercise control over the plan, then there's a good chance you're probably going to be a fiduciary. So let's take a look at some other service providers uh, that you know may be in your uh, plan and that you work with. So one of these is an investment representative. Uh, another one could be an investment uh, registered investment advisor or a trustee. So whether or not uh, these individuals that you might be working with are actually fiduciaries within your plan, it, it gets a little confusing. So why don't we take a deeper dive into each one of these and see if we can clarify. Generally, an investment representative, or IR, uh, is associated with a broker-dealer and is not a fiduciary to your plan. In fact, they're typically prohibited by their broker-dealer from accepting any type of fiduciary role to your plan or to your participants. Their obligation to your plan is really limited to what's called the standard of suitability. In other words, um, what they're doing is making investment recommendations that are suitable for your plan participants. Note they're not required to ensure that the recommended investment solutions are in the best interest of the plan participants and their beneficiaries, nor uh, to you know really 
disclose any conflicts of interest that they might have uh, affecting their recommendations, like, for example, how they're being paid. Recently, the DOL guidance uh, has come out, uh, and it's, this is some of the proposed language, and it's kind of looking to change that up a little bit. Uh, under the proposed guidance, investment representatives would be held to a fiduciary standard for their recommendations. I, I would note that there's a considerable amount of discussion and debate going on in Washington right now. In fact, I, I believe there uh, there have hearings on it uh, today. Um, Many, many broker-dealers acknowledge that there is really a need to elevate the standard of care and to bring some harmony or parity between uh, investment representatives and investment advisors. But there's relatively little consensus on how it needs to be accomplished. We'll cover a little bit more of that later. So let's take a look at another one. How about a registered investment advisor, or RIA, as they're often called, is actually considered a fiduciary to the plan. An RIA can be either engaged in a fully discretionary uh, advisor under ERISA 338 or a non-discretionary uh, fiduciary under ERISA 321. A fully discretionary 338 uh, RIA will manage the plan's investments and make all the necessary changes without involving or even asking the plan sponsor's approval. Alternatively, a 321 non-discretionary fiduciary, RI, manages the investments in the plan but only makes changes to the underlying investments with the approval of the plan sponsor. So it creates a, a co-fiduciary or shared responsibility. A plan trustee um, can also be engaged by the plan sponsor in either a fully discretionary role or a directed role. The fully discretionary trustee, again, will manage the plan's investments and make all the necessary changes without involving or asking the plan sponsor's approval. A directed trustee really has limited authority as a result and certainly limited liability. All actions that a directed trustee takes are the result of being directed by the plan sponsor. Accordingly directed uh, trustees really provide fairly limited fiduciary protection and minimal exposure from them to liability. So let's take a look at a few others. Um, Non-fiduciaries that you might be working with, uh, there's a number of them, uh, and they certainly assist in your ongoing plan administration. So for example, you might be working with a record keeper or a third-party administrator, a custodian, uh, an auditor if you're a larger company, an actuary if you have a defined benefit plan, or uh, also you probably are working with an ERISA attorney. All of these parties are generally considered not fiduciaries to your plan. In fact, you might find that many of them have engagement language in their, in their engagement agreements that specifically state they're not fiduciaries to their plan. Some may also go as far as to state that the services that they're providing are really ministerial or non-management in nature and that they're subject to the plan's fiduciary's uh, direction. So what are the obligations of a fiduciary? Fiduciaries must act solely in the best interest of plan participants and their beneficiaries and with the exclusive purpose of providing benefits to them. We call this the duty of loyalty. Also, fiduciaries must carry out their duties prudently. This is a central and cardinal principle under ERISA. It means that a planned fiduciary must carry out their duties with the skill, care, and diligence that would be exercised by a reasonably prudent person who's familiar with such matters. In other words, really an expert. This is often referred to as the prudent expert standard. 
following the plan document is also critically important. The document is the foundation for the plan administration, and fiduciaries must follow it, and further, um, maybe even more importantly, ensure that the others are complying with it. Other key fiduciary duties is to diversify the plan's investments in order to minimize the risk of large investment losses to the plan. A fiduciary must also make sure that the plan expenses to be paid uh, using plan assets are reasonable and appropriate. Not all expenses can be paid with plan assets. Further, plan fees must be monitored and benchmarked to determine if they're reasonable given the value of the services that are being rendered. You know, as we previously stated, it's the obligation of a fiduciary to determine whether the compensation of a service provider is reasonable. So that being said, historically the determination of a service provider's compensation or fees uh, or their income was extremely difficult to determine. Further, when providers uh, would tender their compensation to plan fiduciaries, the format was oftentimes non-standard, uh, incomplete, inconsistent from provider to provider. Some providers might only disclose hard dollar compensation, while others might include both hard and soft dollars. So, for example, uh, at one end of the spectrum, a service provider might directly invoice their fees, making the determination very easy to others uh, who, who receive, you know, to determine what they're making, versus others who receive indirect compensation from service providers uh, other than the employer um, and not disclosing them, thus giving really the appearance that maybe the, the, the fees or the services are free. It should be noted that the DOL does not have jurisdiction over non-fiduciaries such as record keepers, custodians, etc., and as such could not force them to disclose their compensation. I, I will note here that, and, and I've, I've seen this, and Dave, I suspect you probably have as well, that we've worked with a number of uh, plan sponsors in the past that, you know, because they didn't write a check um, out of the plan or out of their corporate assets, they truly believed that the plan was free and didn't cost them anything. And, and again, I think that's, that was part of the DOL's concern. Because of this jurisdictional uh, conundrum, the DOL enacted a couple of regulations under ERISA 408b2 and ERISA 404a5, which together gave plan fiduciaries the ammunition they needed to demand fee disclosures from service providers. The regulations also provided guidance on standardizing uh, reporting formats. The teeth of the, of the regulation stipulated that the failure of the service provider to tender their fees, uh, their fee disclosures, created a prohibited transaction since the provider's fees could then no longer be reasonably determined. As such, the fiduciary was then forced to terminate the, re uh, the relationship with the service provider. Even better than that, the regulations required the fiduciary to actually report the service provider uh, to the DOL, kind of a snitch program. Under Regulation 408b2, the regulations required the service provider to deliver fee disclosures to the plan sponsors at the beginning of the engagement. The disclosure uh, must include any hard or soft dollars, direct or indirect compensation received. Any changes in the stated fees also had to be immediately disclosed to the plan sponsor. Further, regulations were required that the service provider maintain written contracts or engagement agreements with the plan sponsors detailing all the services that are going to be rendered. Under ERISA 404A5, regulations required the service providers to deliver a fee disclosure to the participants once a year. 
Like the other disclosures to plan fiduciaries, this one also required hard and soft dollars, indirect and indirect, that might be paid to the or be paid by the participants. This includes things like investment costs, distribution fees, wrap fees, loan fees, etc. The regulations also require uh, basis point fees uh, to be disclosed in a dollar, might, a dollar amount, like you know the uh, amount per thousand dollars of investment. Further, the disclosure included other items like an objective overview of the investment option, investment returns, uh, comparable benchmarks, and then a website to be able to get more information uh, on the funds. So why, why are fees important? Why, why should we even be considering this? Well, this actually came from a DOL publication. Um, consider the effect of a plan participant's account. Uh, assuming that an employee 35 years of old uh, to retire, with, with, excuse me, with an employee that's got 35 years to retire, uh, with a current balance of about $25,000. Annual return during the next uh, 35 years would be 7%. Fees and expenses would average about a half a percent. Given that, uh, the DOL said that your account would grow to about $227,000 at retirement, even if there were no further contributions made. If, however, the fees increased by 1% to 1.5%, your account balance would now only grow to $163,000. DOL's conclusion was that a 1% increase in fees and expenses reduced the account balance by nearly 28%. And that's why they feel that fees are so critically important. They're also confusing. Um, I include this, and we'll come back to this a little later. But I, I think it's critically important for plan sponsors to understand what are all the different types of fees uh, that, that they might encounter. And a lot of these uh, may even be indirect ones that are taken from the mutual fund or the advisor uh, or paid to the, the, the uh, investment representative by the broker-dealer. These are fees that you should be familiar with. We'll certainly be able to and be happy to provide you with a copy of this if you're interested. But uh, these are all different types of fees that you should know what's going on. Fred Reich is a uh, nationally recognized ERISA attorney uh, with a firm called Drinker Biddle. Mr. Reich noted in a speech regarding fiduciary responsibility that its legal obligations and standards are the highest known to law. He also noted that uh, most plan sponsors neither have uh, really the expertise nor the experience to completely fulfill their obligations as a fiduciary. But under the law, there are allowed, and, and I think he even said, dare say it encouraged, to seek out help uh, when it's needed. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, uh, the what you can do and, and, and how you can go through it. So ERISA, as, as we said, not only allows but encourages plan sponsors to seek out assistance with their fiduciary obligations. Accordingly, fiduciary duties of the plan sponsors may be delegated or assigned to others. However, the legal responsibilities of those fiduciary obligations uh, to the plan sponsor may not be. So you can delegate the duties, you can't delegate the responsibilities. Now there's a few exceptions to this general rule uh, that we mentioned earlier related to, for example, plan trustees or registered investment advisors that have full discretionary authority. That being said, remember service provider selection decisions the ongoing monitoring of the service providers and the determination of reasonable fees 
still remains that obligation of the plan sponsor and their liability. So plan sponsors typically do the hiring of the trustees and the investment advisors, so ultimately they're still the ones that are going to be responsible. Fiduciaries who don't follow these basic standards of conduct uh, required by ERISA may be held personally liable to restore any losses to the plan or restore any profits they may have made through the improper use of the plan's assets. A fiduciary should be aware of others who serve in a fiduciary uh, capacity in the same plan since all potential liability uh, for the actions of the others could be theirs. For example, if a fiduciary knowingly participates in another fiduciary's breach of responsibility or conceals a breach or does not act to correct it, that fiduciary could be liable as well. Breaches of fiduciary law can pierce the corporate veil and inflict both civil and criminal penalties for fiduciary breaches. So let's hit our uh, polling question number two. So now that you've heard all that, how many of you still want to be a fiduciary? All right. Well, not too surprisingly, uh, we now have 68% of you saying absolutely no way. I, I would kind of tend to agree. I, I certainly um, feel the same way. Well, I'm going to hand it over to Dave, and I mean, he's going to start kind of going through and answering some of the, the – and give you some, some, some relief on how we can reduce our liabilities. All right, how can risk be reduced? Occasionally, I still encounter a defined contribution plan that does not allow participant direction of their investments. <clears throat> the decision to not allow participant direction of investments significantly raises the threshold of fiduciary liability to the plan sponsor. ERISA Section 404C was created to help employers reduce this liability, provided they comply with all of the guidance and pass on the investment risk to those participants. <clears throat> ERISA 404C provides a set of voluntary guidelines that a plan sponsor can follow to effectively transfer the potential liability related to the investment decision-making responsibilities to participants in the plan. Essentially, 404C requires that participants must be able to choose from a quote-unquote broad range of investment options <clears throat> and be able to exercise control over those accounts. The definition of a broad range of investments has three considerations. First, the participants should be offered an opportunity to affect the level of return and degree of risk to which their accounts are subject. Second, participants should be offered a choice from at least three different investment alternatives that are diversified and are materially different in terms of risk and return characteristics. Third, participants need to be able to diversify so that, that, so that they can reduce the risk of large losses. Exercising control means that participants have the opportunity to give investment instructions at least once each quarter. For example, they should be able to transfer among their investment options at least quarterly. Overall, Section 404C requires that participants be given sufficient information to make informed decisions about the options available in the plan. Another way to reduce fiduciary liability is to have an investment policy statement or an IPS. An IPS provides a roadmap of how investment decisions are made, how investments are monitored and replaced, and the reason why those actions are taken. A fiduciary may also hire a service provider to handle certain of those functions. 
<clears throat> if you rely on service providers such as professional investment advisors, guidelines should be established to monitor their performance and ensure that they act prudently and in the best interest of the plan participants and those beneficiaries. ERISA requires that those who handle plan funds or other plan property generally must be covered by a fidelity bond. This, type of in, this is a type of insurance that protects the plan against loss resulting from fraudulent or dishonest acts of those covered by the bond. Fiduciaries may further protect themselves from fiduciary liability by securing fiduciary liability insurance. Most property and casualty insurers have this coverage available. When considering coverage limits, remember, the owners rarely sue themselves, so consider excluding the business owner's account values from the total plan assets to be covered. A final key step to take in reducing fiduciary liability is to document all actions taken with respect to investments and all other plan operations. Having a written record of what was considered in reaching a decision or implementing a policy can be invaluable in demonstrating good faith on the part of the plan sponsor. <clears throat> All right, selecting and monitoring of the investments. As we've outlined, plan fiduciaries may be protected from poor decisions made by participants that direct their own investments through compliance with ERISA Section 404C. But plan sponsors continue to be responsible for selecting and monitoring investments available in the plan. Fiduciaries must be able to demonstrate that they follow prudent procedures in selecting those investment options. The first step should be a detailed procedure for selecting and monitoring. Sponsors should adopt written guidelines. They should identify responsible parties. They should state the plan's purpose and objectives. You should also establish minimum investment standards. <clears throat> you should choose investment options that are compatible with plan objectives and participant demographics. <clears throat> Most commonly, this is all accomplished through an investment policy statement. This contains the guidelines for how investment options are chosen and how they are reviewed on an ongoing basis. The goal is to be able to demonstrate prudence in all aspects of the development of the investment option menu for the participants. <clears throat> in addition to selecting the investment choices, fiduciaries must also monitor the performance of the funds and replace those that are no longer prudent. They should ask some of these questions. <clears throat> is each investment option prudent and suitable for the participants in the plan? Those can be things like sector funds or gold funds, et cetera. Are those necessarily suitable? They can be for certain, certain client groups, but for others, they may not be. Does the group of funds offered constitute a broad range of investment options? Or does each investment choice meet or exceed investment policy standards? As we previously mentioned, sponsors can engage an investment advisor to handle these duties on their behalf. Monitoring should be performed at least annually. Most experts would encourage sponsors to perform the task more frequently, such as semi-annual or quarterly monitoring. A critically important action in selecting and monitoring the plan's investment choices is to document clearly and in detail how investment decisions were made. 
Also, a written record should be kept of what aspects of each fund's performance were reviewed and what conclusions were reached based on that review. Now let's look briefly at several issues related to selection and monitoring. <clears throat> when selecting the investment options to be offered to participants, <clears throat> fiduciaries should consider such factors as asset classes. Do we want to have stock funds, bond funds, money market funds, or stable value funds in the lineup? Do we want passive or active management in the portfolio? Passives are typically defined as the index funds. They're not trying to beat the index. They are trying to be the index. Active managers are actively trying to beat the appropriate index. So it depends on an individual's philosophy or uh, fund committee's philosophy on how they want to manage that 401k plan. Or you could have both. Investment styles such as growth, value, large, medium, and small companies. Another consideration could be the volatility of the investment option. Volatility isn't really necessarily a good or a bad thing, but it is a good idea to know how volatile the funds are in the 401k lineup. Sector funds such as utilities or financial services. And again, we aren't necessarily fond of having these, these type of funds in a 401k plan. Um, some of the participants may not be sophisticated enough to handle those type of plans in their 401k lineup. Um, so we tend to like broader types of for, um, mutual funds in the 401k. They are typically more volatile and less diversified and require greater oversight and monitoring by the, by the participants and the plan sponsor. Again, all decisions should conform to the standards in the investment policy statement and be sure to document that all factors considered and how the final decisions were made. The fund selection. Some participants may not have interest or knowledge to select individual funds from the menu offered in their plan. They'd rather just pick one or two funds and be done with it. In fact, even though your plan permits participants to direct their investments, it cannot require them to do so. The investment responsibility for non-directed participant balances falls back to the plan sponsor or the fiduciary. In both of these situations, a lifestyle fund or a target date fund might be appropriate. Now, most sponsors now routinely include these choices in their menus. These funds offer a ready-made mix of stocks and bonds that changes over time as investors get closer to retirement. A lifestyle or a target date fund has the advantage of providing a diversified portfolio option in one fund. That option is very popular for newer and younger employees. The DOL has provided additional protective guidance for employers that use these options and include and define them as the plan's default investment solution for participants that do not want to make an affirmative election. Like 404C protections, plan sponsors must follow the implementation guidance closely and fully with regard to notices and documentation. Other participants may want professional portfolio management in which an advisor makes the fund selections for them. This could be accomplished either through a pre-selected portfolio based on the participant's risk tolerance or through an active management by a professional financial advisor who offers individual guidance. Your investment policy statement should identify why such funds or options were chosen. 
Now, in reviewing the fund options, planned fiduciaries should look for funds that have a management team that has been, has been in place for some time and has experienced a solid track record in all types of market environments. Remember that relatively poor performance in a down market shouldn't necessarily result in that fund being eliminated from consideration. Fund expenses are also an important topic for review, and the expenses of a particular fund being considered should be compared to the expenses of similar funds in the same asset class. The investment policy statements should spell out standards for management team qualifications, such as specifying that the fund's management team must have a minimum five-year performance history. It should also state that the standard for fund expenses, for example, it might indicate that the fund expenses may not exceed the average of the expenses of a similar group of funds. Again, document all decisions. Adding an investment to the plan. Now, during the course of, of regular monitoring of a plan's investment choices, it may become appropriate to consider adding a new investment option to the plan's menu. It may be helpful to expand the roster of asset classes. For example, it might be time to offer a particular fund category, for example, emerging markets. Or it may be time to provide access to a wider range of investment styles. The review might conclude that there is a need to offer options associated with the value style as opposed to the growth style. Another possibility is that participants are asking for asset allocation funds or lifestyle funds or target date type funds. The investment policy statement should be flexible when it comes to adding investment choices. It needs to allow for the addition of asset classes, management styles, and sector or other specialty funds. Keep in mind that investment choices need to be appropriate for the employee population. All right, employer stock. Company stock is a unique investment and should not be considered a diversified plan investment under ERISA. Planned fiduciaries need to be certain that this type of investment is suitable so that for the demographics of the employee population served by the retirement plan. Is it too volatile? Is the employer stock traded so thinly that the value, it, that valuing it could be difficult? Can the stock be diversified by participants? In other words, do participants have the option of exchanging shares into other plan options at certain intervals? At a minimum, plan participants should have sufficient information about the company's financial condition so that they can make informed decisions about the stock. Also, fund lineup modifications. Steps should be taken to simplify asset allocations for participants or to eliminate duplication. It might be appropriate to, to remove a sector or specialty fund that, be, that has become too high risk for the participants. The result of monitoring the plan's investment options might be that one or more funds has failed to meet the standards set out in the investment policy statement, or it appears to be headed in that direction. A fund's portfolio composition may have shifted significantly. It may be underperforming, or there's been a major change in management. Creating a list for these potentially at-risk investments is a good way to isolate them for more in-depth or more frequent reviews by the fiduciary. Ultimately, it may be necessary to consider taking action to replace a fund that isn't performing as expected. 
As a reminder, ERISA requires participants be provided with a timely notice of changes to the plan investment lineup. Typically, notices should be provided to the participants at least 30 days prior to any changes. This would include fund additions, replacements, or deletions. The notice also needs to include detailed information about any investment option, additions, or replacements that include fund fees, performance versus the benchmarks, website addresses in order to get additional information. Fiduciaries need to ensure that any decision about individual investment options adhere to the investment policy statements guidelines and are well documented. Even a decision to do nothing other than continue to monitor a particular fund should be recorded along with the reasons for that decision. All right, let's go ahead and turn to educating participants. One of the most significant responsibilities of a plan fiduciary is to make sure that the participants have sufficient information to make decisions about their participation in the employer's retirement plan. Having an outstanding investment choice in the menu means nothing if the participants don't have an understanding of how the retirement plan works and how it may benefit them. An education plan should really address for the participants, why is the plan being offered to the employees? What specific benefits will participants experience? How does the plan operate on a daily basis? How do you enroll and make changes in the plan? What information will participants receive? What are the difference between asset classes and the other investment choices? Why is it important to think about saving for retirement? And where do participants go to get additional assistance in their investments? In recent surveys, today more than ever, participants need and are demanding help with their investments. The survey results are clear. They want investment advice, not just guidance. Plan sponsors should avoid all, at all cost giving out investment guidance or advice. Most of you are not securities registered and expose your employer to significant potential liability. Investment professionals should be engaged to provide these types of services. And we do want to keep all of the participants informed in the plan. There are several categories of change that could lead to communicating with employees after the initial introduction of the retirement plan. Plan changes such as reducing the waiting period to enroll or the vesting schedule for employer contributions must be clearly communicated to employees. Remember that certain changes, including plan amendments, have requirements regarding how soon a modification must be communicated to participants. There may also be administrative changes such as a new date for distributing quarterly participant account statements Announcing these type of changes provides an excellent opportunity to publicize the plan's advantages. And of course, a change in the plan's investment options must be clearly communicated to employees. Even if a change in the menu has not yet been made, it is useful to alert participants about particular funds that have been placed on watch. Plan sponsors should take advantage of opportunities to share information with participants and encourage them to learn more about the ways in which the plan can benefit them. Brad, I believe it's time for another polling question. All right, all right. So 
within your organization, I'm kind of curious, uh, how, many of you, how many of you receive, well, no education uh, on your retirement plan at all, maybe some education, but just with guidance, uh, maybe education that you actually get, specific investment advice, or uh, the last category is I have no idea. All right, uh, so this pretty uh, resounding results here. 67% uh, get some education with guidance. I think that's pretty common. Uh, we've got a dead heat for I'm not really sure or uh, education with investment advice. You know, we are seeing that there really is a move towards the investment advice. Uh, we, we talk a little bit within our office, you know, what's the difference between guidance versus advice? and. Um, let me give you this example. It's probably the best way. Uh, so a friend of mine and I were in Boston here recently, and we were going to a, a really nice restaurant, seafood restaurant. And we asked the concierge for directions, and you know they said, "Hey, go down the escalator, take a left, take a right, go a quarter block." Well, needless to say, we got lost instantly. Well, we'd been given guidance. Um, it wasn't ongoing. It wasn't specific. Um, it, it didn't seem to modify itself as I journeyed through my, my venture to my seafood. What I needed was advice. So about halfway through, we realized we were lost. So we got out our cell phones. We typed in the restaurant. You know, I don't know why we didn't do this in the first place. And then we were getting advice, and it guided us on a step-by-step -step, um, uh, direction to the restaurant. That's the difference between the two, a guy's, uh, advice versus guidance. So where do fiduciaries get in trouble? Well, I think this slide kind of says it all. Um, you know, I, the answer is a lot of different ways. Uh, not knowing, you know, what's the old saying? Don't know what you don't know. Uh, inattention uh, or imprudence. So we, we see it in, in, a, in a lot of different ways. Most generally, fiduciaries get in trouble. Um, it's usually one of these three reasons. You know, again, you don't know what you don't know. The laws and the regulations covering fiduciary actions are complicated and detailed. Staying informed, attending maybe uh, webinars like this, engaging other professionals, maybe through your professional organizations that you belong to, that routinely deal with this body of law is probably the best way to stay out of trouble, stay informed. Inattention, uh, it happens to all of us from time to time. It occurs when we get too busy with too many competing priorities and deadlines. Uh, engaging a professional that can help you focus on what's fiduciarily important uh, might save you time, thus allowing you to get some of your other priorities taken care of. Imprudent decisions uh, occur for a host of reasons. You know, sometimes uh, when an employer or an owner uh, may have unresolved conflicts of interest that compete with their fiduciary uh, role, their primary role. Um, abdicating a fiduciary obligation uh, or a duty that cannot or maybe should not be deferred to an individual that's not qualified or simply doesn't understand what they're getting themselves into. Failing to establish a defined process and follow them is a common reason that uh, imprudent uh, decisions occur. Let's pivot a little bit and talk about some litigation hotspots that are out there. Most recently, uh, there was a case that uh, was called Tibble versus uh, Edison International. Uh, the case was based on the plaintiff's contention that uh, costlier funds were chosen in the retirement plan uh, when there was an identical lower-cost fund option. Uh, this, according to the Supreme Court, was a breach of the plan fiduciary or the plan sponsor's fiduciary duty to continuously monitor and weigh the various options. 
for the employer that has uh, for, for employers that already have processes in place to provide continuous monitoring and risk this may really mean nothing new to you at all however many particularly small and mid-sized organizations may be challenged to meet this new expectation of continuously monitoring the store uh, for your investment options within the plan Employers should ask questions of their investment providers. For example, if there are lower cost shares uh, that are available and, and do they exist? Minimum account size restrictions you know, may, may be in place uh, for some of these lower share cost classes, but you never know if you don't ask. If the investment options uh, may also include revenue sharing and you want to be sure you take that into consideration. Occasionally we have found uh, mutual funds with lower cost shares but once the revenue sharing has actually been taken into consideration and netted out, the benefit of the lower cost uh, option, uh, the net cost, uh, may, not, may not be worth the, uh, the decision. A another case that was out there was called Tatum versus RJR. And, 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 and it's root, it says, is if you fail to have a prudent process in place to make your fiduciary decision, basically you're going to have a very high bar to overcome to show that you made the right decision. You know, any of you that have kids will recognize the argument in this case. It involved a defendant that made a decision without a defined process that turned out to be lucky um, but certainly not in good form. Ever had a child that did something that turned out okay, but the way they went about it was totally luck um, and turned out okay? Well, that's this case. This is being referred to as the could have, would have case. I'm sure we've probably heard our kids even said that. I, I think I might have said that when I was young. Uh, imagine a blind monkey throwing a dart at a wall with every mutual fund in the world on it. It's possible that the monkey might actually hit the world's best mutual fund assuming one actually exists. In this hypothetical, it's easy to argue that the monkey uh, shouldn't be held liable as, you know, frankly, there was no other better fund that was available um, in the universe. But in reality, uh, we know that there's probably other prudent investments that could be made, be made available to the plan. What if the, the monkey in this example um, hit a fund that ranked in the top 20% or in the top 40%? or maybe in the top 60%. Well, as you see, the ability to rationalize your answer becomes harder and harder to defend. Simply put, fiduciaries should not be shooting from the hip and trying to make good, uh, good substantive choices without the time and effort needed to know whether the decision was really good or not. There's really no good substitute for a good process. Back to fees, just once more. Um, you know, again, the, the the Tibble case I think is 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 a good example of understanding uh, what are 12b 12b1 fees, what's revenue sharing. Um, on this slide, it refers to as subtransfer agency fees. These are the different kinds of expenses that many of you probably don't even see. Uh, they should show up in your. Uh, fee disclosure documents, but you may or may not actually see them, and you do need to be aware of them. And again, if, if you're interested, we'll be happy to provide the slide to you. Let's talk a little bit about some of the newly proposed DOL regulations. Uh, in, in 2012, with relatively little fanfare, the DOL issued a three-page memo with proposed new definitions for fiduciaries. The proposed language was met with, you know, 
quite a bit of negativity and was quickly dismissed uh, as a poorly thought through idea. In April of 2015, the DOL reissued their proposed and new fiduciary regulations, this time with the full support of the White House. The details of this new regulation grew from its original three-page memo to now roughly 400 pages. The proposed regulations are, by all accounts, uh, probably one of the most uh, sweeping uh, game changers since ERISA was first enacted. In fact, they represent the greatest changes we may have seen in this particular area. There continues to be a significant debate and discussion over these proposed regulations, but most in the industry, as I've said, feel that they probably will be implemented. Congress has already even threatened to defund the appropriations bill uh, and, and to defund its enforcement, but industry experts who we've talked to said that uh, the congressional opponents probably don't have enough votes to override a presidential veto. So it's likely to happen in, in some form or another. So what's, what's in the proposed regulations? Well, it vastly broadens the definition of who is a fiduciary. Many, if not most, of the selling uh, and, and investment recommendation activities of a registered representative or a broker-dealer uh, who you might recall earlier in the slides, I said they're not a fiduciary. Well, under these new regulations, they would become a fiduciary. Broker-dealers who, who have been held to that non-fiduciary standard and were just held to the standard of suitability, well, now they're going to be required to rise to that new level of what's in the best interest of the client. Investment, registered investment advisors, we've been held to that fiduciary standard for a long time. Uh, and, and, and so nothing's really changing, at least very much, on the registered investment advisory side. In the proposed language, uh, prior to rendering any advice, uh, and this again is from the broker-dealer side, uh, in fact, prior to any kind of selling activities, the broker is going to be required to enter into what's being called a best interest contract, or BIC with a prospective client to disclose any conflicts of interest that they may have, like how they're being compensated. Retirement plan employee education is also going to be affected. Only very high-level, basic, uh, uh, excuse me, I should say low-level, basic uh, discussions with a plan participant can really occur so that it's non-fiduciary. Again, kind of more the guidance, not the advice. Any individual guidance uh, or advice that goes into any kind of in-depth discussion about the investments, makes any kind of recommendations whatsoever, is now clearly going to be seen as a fiduciary action, whether it comes from the registered investment advisor or from the broker. Plan sponsors and HR professionals should also be very careful with these proposed rules. Many organizations uh, form investment committees comprised of company employees to meet with their retirement plan service providers. Depending on the actions uh, and authority of these committees, these individuals could actually become investment fiduciaries to the plan. Further, you know, should those members, for example, I guess I should say, should, should those members be paid um, you know, compensated in any way. Maybe it's a bonus, maybe it's some kind of perk uh, for being part of those investment committee meetings uh, and being part of that selection process. Those individuals are now going to become uh, an, an investment 
fiduciary, not just a planned fiduciary. Um, I think our opinion is we strongly encourage you to not compensate people that are on those types of, of committees. So um, I'm going to shift over to Dave now and let him go through and identify you know, the checklist that we talked about earlier and how maybe we can help you uh, track some of these responsibilities. Thank you, Brad. Now we've got in front of you a fiduciary responsibility checklist, and I'm not necessarily going to go through all of these, but I'm going to hit a couple of highlights. Um, if you'd like a copy of this, we'd be happy to get this to you as well. Number one, you make sure that the plan document is updated for all legal changes, and, and you're going to do that on a periodic basis. You all should develop an investment policy statement and keep that investment policy statement current. You want to review your outside experts and advisors at least on an annual basis. Semi-annual is probably better. Quarterly may be better than that. And then above everything else, document all procedures and all decisions that you make in the plan and have those in a file that you can refer to in the future. All right. Brad is now going to take us through our last polling question. Okay, so our, our last polling question for the webinar is, does your organization meet uh, regularly and do you utilize a defined review process? Um, answers definitely, sort of, but could it use improvement? Nope, but we're going to start uh, and don't know. Okay, uh, again, about 48% says uh, sort of, but needs improvement. Eh, that's probably a, a, a pretty doggone on honest answer. Um, I, you know, I, I personally think that uh, fiduciary responsibility and, and complying is, uh, is, as it says, it's a journey, not a destination. Obviously, laws are constantly changing and court cases are constantly changing, so we need to kind of continue to improve. So, uh, good, good answer there. There's a great deal of information that's available uh, on the internet. Um, you know, we've re listed here some resource sites uh, for you, and and again, we're we're happy to send you some of our checklists and guides that we have for plan sponsors. Um, we also our website aghwealth.com uh, has a number of. Uh, uh, good checklists and articles and white papers out there that talk about how to manage your fiduciary liability as well. You know, it's often said related to ERISA and retirement plans that it's not if a problem arises, but it's really when a problem arises. That being said, knowing what to do on that faithful day comes is critical. It might be the day you receive a call from your record keeper saying that they discovered that there's problems with your prior year qualification test. It might be the day that your, uh, your payroll provider tells you that they've been sending the wrong definition of compensation to your record keeper, or the day that you learn that you forgot to you know, add in a required plan amendment uh, and update the document language. All of these issues and many more uh, occur frequently with retirement plans. Uh, our recommendation is, first and foremost, fix the problems as they come up. Um, you know, all too often, I, I, I think, you know, early in my career, I think there was always that feeling of, gosh, nobody will ever know. Well, the problem is, is they do. And, and 
you know, the IRS has significantly, and the DOL has significantly increased their uh, audit and surveillance activity. And so, you know, the chances of these things being uncovered is, is getting more and more uh, prevalent. Second, get help just as soon as possible. Um, you know, contact your ERISA attorney. Uh, contact your record keeper. Get your investment advisor, your trustee involved. You know, you might find they're they're very interested in helping you get these problems resolved. You know, due to the nature of co-fiduciary liability, these these providers may in fact have a, a vested interest in helping you get those problems within the plan uh, taken care of. Both the DOL and the IRS have plan remediation guidance uh, that allows you to correct some of the problems yourself, uh, where others, others may have to be submitted to the DOL or the IRS for approval. There's correction regulations uh, that are out there. They're extremely complicated, and they're going to require you to get with your team of advisors to assist you. Failure to submit um, a requested, you know, when, when the IRS or the DOL request that you submit uh, for approval, you know, failure to get their their approval uh, can invalidate, uh, you know, some of some of the the corrections. It may invalidate uh, some of the uh, sanctions that may have been reduced or pulled off of you. So it, it is important that you go through the process correctly. Their self-correction guidance covers 15 to 20 different types of transactions, including, you know, failure to timely remit contributions, you know, 401k contributions, maybe late 5500s, and, and some prohibited transactions. Uh, lawsuits often begin with participant letters or phone calls claiming benefits. Uh, consult with attorneys to develop model claim and appeal denial letters. Dave and I have probably said it. I, I can't even imagine how many times we should have had a, we should have had a count. But document, document, document. Um, good friend of mine often says that you know the person who has the thickest file when litigation begins is usually the one who wins the challenge or dispute. It's critically important to be sure you're the one with the thickest file with all the documentation. Again, attorneys say it all the time, document everything. Being a good fiduciary is not necessarily about being right. We, we all want to be right. But, but rather, it, it's about having a defined process and then following it. Poor outcomes, you know, they, they may occur. Um, and, 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 and you may have challenges, and threats may even arise. But if you've documented your situation, if you've documented what was going on at that time, why you, you know, what was your process, what was your procedure, how did you follow it through, how did you come about your decision, following that process and your documentation and your decisions, and that is your supporting information, you're going to be in great shape. That concludes uh, the, the uh, webinar. Both uh, Dave and I want to thank everybody that uh, has listened in today and for your attention. I do think we've got a couple of questions, and I'll see if I can answer them here real quick. One of the questions uh, that came up was, um, what is uh, exercise discretionary authority for a fiduciary? Does an HR manager fall under a fiduciary? Well, two questions. Let me, let me answer the first one. Um, to exercise discretionary authority. Exercising discretionary authority really has to do with, you know, a, a plan sponsor typically has all of the authority within a plan. They're the ones who make the decisions to hire a provider. They can delegate those duties for example, you can delegate record keeping or you could delegate 
um, the custodial function, or you could delegate um, uh, you know, investment management decisions. The question is, 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 does the person that then has that, do they have the ability to do kind of whatever they want to do, or do they really still have to listen to and obey the plan sponsor who hired them? If they don't, for example, in an investment world, if that investment advisor has the ability to take funds in and out of the plan, they have discretion. Um, if they don't, if the plan sponsor still says, hey, look, I want to hear your recommendations, but I still want to have a voice in that final decision, that's a non-discretionary uh, environment there. The second question was, does an HR manager fall under a fiduciary? Um, by title, not necessarily, but by action, possibly. Uh, if, that HR, if that HR manager's uh, obligations and duties include things like determining who's eligible for the plan, maybe signing off on a distribution form, approving a loan or a hardship distribution, um, any of those things could uh, facilitate them becoming a fiduciary plan. Remember, just because you have you've delegated the duties to a record keeper to give that information back to you, that record keeper is not a fiduciary. Ultimately, it really does go back uh, to the the plan sponsor, and if, as the HR manager, if that's your duty to sign off on that, then you would be a fiduciary there. I believe that is uh, the questions that we have, and I think we're pretty close to being out of time. Go ahead, Mike, back to you. Next slide. Brad, we had one more question come in, and it's asking, is an RIA required to be a fiduciary under the new laws? Yeah, I, it's, that's a good question. Um, so a registered investment advisor is is already a, a fiduciary under the law um, without any changes to the uh, proposed language that the DOL is talking about. Uh, a registered RIA already falls under uh, the 19, I think it's the 1940s Act, uh, the Security uh, Act. So they're, they're effectively already a fiduciary. Uh, they and, and, and an example of that in function might be uh, they have the legal ability to provide investment uh, advice versus guidance to a participant. They can uh, be uh, assigned the responsibility of the investments um, from the plan, you know, again, from the plan sponsor. That that obligation, again, could be in a fully discretionary or in a non-discretionary or co-fiduciary uh, role. So uh, good, good question. 